Hi, I'm Steve Mabb, Chair of the Australian Shareholders Association, and we're proud to be hosting the 2024 Investor Conference in Melbourne from the 19th to the 21st of May. And we're stoked that Phil, the host of this podcast, is going to be our special guest MC. If you haven't heard much about the ASA Conference, it's a flagship event that attracts around 300 investors and industry professionals, including the Chair of National Australia Bank this year, the Chair of AGL. We have Dr. Sam Hupert, the founder and CEO of Primedicus, and we've also got Richard White, the founder and CEO of WiseTech coming along, along with many others. For a limited time, new members can enjoy special pricing on registration for the upcoming conference, along with a complimentary 12-month digital membership with the ASA. That's two-day conference registration plus one-year ASA membership for $499, a saving of $150. Simply search for Australian Shareholders Conference Register, click on two-day conference non-member, enter the discount code MEM, as in member, 499, the number's 499, so that's MEM 499 to claim your special offer. Come along and meet me and Phil at the conference. We look forward to seeing you there. And I hope you enjoyed this episode of Shares for Beginners. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Shares for Beginners. Phil Muscatello and FinPods are authorised reps of Money Sherpa. The information in this podcast is general in nature and doesn't take into account your personal situation. It's a very easy quantitative measure for that an everyday investor can use just to compare the quality of the growth stocks in their portfolio. So it's really simple, really. Like, you know, if it's achieving a higher growth rate and a higher free cash flow margin, it's a stronger business and it probably almost certainly deserves a higher PE ratio than one that has a lower one. And it gives you, you know, a way to measure it. Oh, these ones are close or these ones are far apart. And then you can go and cross-check and say, are their PE ratios closer or are they far apart? G'day and welcome back to Shares for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello. We all know and love the high-growth companies that have hopefully helped to contribute to our market returns. But how can you run the tape measure over them? What kind of numbers can help you to value companies that are growing fast but are not yet maximising profit margins? According to my guest today, the magic number is 40. G'day, Claude. G'day, Phil. Great to be here. Claude Walker is the founder of A Rich Life, where he writes the Ethical Equities column. He loves his ASX tech stocks and investing in smaller, unloved and ignored microcaps, where the market is much less efficient. So I just wanted to preface this episode and warn listeners that we're going to go a little bit into the weeds, aren't we, Claude? A warning. I, my podcast episode gets <laughs> trigger, a warning. Trigger, oh, dear. Warning. I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, yeah, no, we definitely get into the weeds, but I think you know, on a, on a more general zoomed out level, part of the reason for that is I'm a big believer in the uh, Pygmalion effect. If you have high expectations of something, even unreasonably high expectations, you know, it could come true. And the really interesting thing is that some scientists sort of started testing this, you know, quite a long time ago now, and they initially, I think, tested it on rats 
and and told the rats that they were intelligent or, or treated them in some way that they had this high expectation of the rats. And, and for some reason, over time, these ones that had high expectations performed better, whatever challenge it was. Then they, you know, they did it in humans as well. And again, it was just like the teachers were told that some of the students had actually scored higher on a test. So the teachers were tricked into truly believing that they either had the gifted class or they had the less gifted class that was struggling a little more. And then, you know, o- over time, as they measured the performance of, you know, the, the two groups over time, the kids that had teachers that expected them to score well on tests and expected them to understand more difficult concepts, those kids actually did better. And I think this is a really interesting thing when it comes to, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm 10 years into a, a content creation journey in, in terms of stocks. I think it's really interesting because the marketing side of this kind of business, it says it's make things as uh, simple as possible. You know, three, like literally if you're doing continuing professional education for financial advisors, they're telling you explicitly the way to communicate with people is very, very simple. You know, three dot points, no more than five dot points. That's, you know, if, if you say six, then they'll have forgotten the first one by the time that you say six. But what you lose, the flip side of that approach is you lose the Pygmalion effect, which is where if you actually challenge people to extend themselves and expect that they can follow it, then some of them do. Yeah, augmented expectations. And um, we're approaching this episode because I've been saying a lot lately that this, even though this podcast is called Shares for Beginners, it's not Shares for Simpletons. And really, the stock market is not a simple place. Yeah, right. Well, it's a learning journey. And, you know, I was speaking to a fellow investor just yesterday and, you know, reminiscing about, I guess, one makes an error sometimes of, of seeing a company and, and you see how well it's performing and it's outperforming, the share price is going up and it's doing really well. But you think, oh, you always end up thinking, oh, this is a bit too expensive. You know, 50 times earnings, that's crazy. Or 30 times earnings for this kind of business, that's too high. Or 20 times earnings, you know, whatever it is, you can always kind of convince yourself, oh, yeah, if only I'd bought it 20% cheaper or whatever, then then I'd buy it now, but it's I've missed it. It's interesting because investing is a psychological game. There are certain tools you can try and use to hone the craft, but you'll always, it's a completely moving target all the time. There are some periods where people will be more on the ball and more having a better read on what's going on because it's a two-pronged approach. It's, it's one, you need to be able to form your own opinion of uh, a stock, but then you also need the market to have a different opinion so like you know it's a buy when the market's underestimating it and and it perhaps it's a sell when the market's overestimating it before we get into it um and i refer to your preference to work in the smaller end of the market um fund managers often can't play in this sector is this like would they be like whales trying to swim in the kiddies pool well for some of them it would be filled certainly for the big ones but there are some great small cap fund managers and uh, micro cap fund managers on the ASX. And I think like any small cap investor, really the name of the game for most is, well, there are different strategies, but one of the more repeatable strategies of small cap investing is basically to try to find the smaller companies that are getting bigger and that they're gradually going to graduate into the ASX awards and then one day into the ASX 200. And then once they're at that level, not only do active managers of larger funds start getting interested, but also so passive funds that are just index trackers are, are obliged to uh, buy these companies. So the, the holy grail of a, a small cap success is basically when you buy something that's unloved 
smaller company and considered riskier and perhaps rightly so. And then it gets bigger and it sort of starts getting re-rated as a larger company. And essentially, once it gets put in the ASX 200, you have a, a whole bunch of forced buying and it's not uncommon to see stocks prices increase either before just before or around the time that they're entering into the into the indexes or indices i should say yeah so that happens every quarter doesn't it where the asx 200 gets re-rated or re-weighted whatever the correct word is there is trading and an arbitrage opportunities about that but not easily easy to come by yeah i'm not sure how easy it is i've never tried to actually just purely arbitrage like invest purely in a company just purely because i think it's about to get into the index but i guess the multi-year thesis is that if you think you can you know sometime in the next few years a company is going to get in the index um i've definitely played that and i definitely do believe that sometimes a good time to take profits is once they actually get into those bigger indices are there any fund managers that do actually play in this space Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't want to start talking my book because I invest with a, a few of the small cap fund managers, but there's like a, there's quite a lot of good small cap managers. They often don't have such big marketing, I guess. Uh, some of the best funds actually close quite quickly. So one of the tricks of small cap investing is you can't do it with a lot of money. So all of the best small cap funds will close their fund once they reach a certain amount. And you can really... Actually, you can really judge a small cap fund or a micro cap fund by how much money it takes on. And it's not uncommon to see a fund perform well when it has a smaller amount of money, say, for example, 10 million. But then if it got successful and then suddenly raised a lot of money and was suddenly dealing with 100 million, the opportunity set would be so much worse for that fund. And mind you, there are some good small cap investing funds at around 100 million, because when you think about it, if they're going to have you know 5% position sizes, then they need to be able to buy $5 million worth of stock. And I guess that means if, if there's a company that's $15 million market cap, they'd need to accumulate like 10% of that company to, to have a normal position size. So around $100 million, I think it starts getting quite, you know, the, the size of the companies that they can invest in starts getting, you know, a lot bigger. And, and then you sometimes see, you know, a small cap fund that has $500 million under management, but, you know, really they're going for the mid companies at that point because if you've got 500 million under management then even if you manage to accumulate 10% of a 50 million dollar company it's only 1% of your fund so it's very hard for that to move the dial mm. but it, it can move the dial in terms of the the share price of a company if um, someone goes in and just starts buying that one they, they just can't do that because it would affect their their actual position yeah definitely but you know by the time the the company for itself like naturally ma- makes it way up to 200 million and then starts really getting on their radar again. That's why you can get this sort of these share price re-rates. Now, at the moment, we're not really seeing too much of that uh, in small cap tech and, and that kind of stuff. It's actually had a terrible run after, you know, many years of performing well, especially at the end, like into the COVID boom, the tech stocks were all the rage. You know, some of them have come down a really long way and many of them have halved uh, and we've seen you know mining companies for example go into the index plus you know i guess a, a couple of speculative ai story story stocks but you know i remember there was you know there was one index inclusion day when it's like you know most of it was lithium miners or whatever so there will be this sort of shuffling in and out depending on like what's hot and what's what's not at any given time so it's very hard for investors to find these companies. Where would you suggest is a good place to start looking just to find out what's what's on the menu there? 
Well, actually, one of the reasons why I was keen to talk to you about the rule of 40 and discuss, you know, what is the rule of 40 is because I actually think it is a, a, a reasonable way for people to invest in growth stocks. And one of the reasons I think it's reasonable is it balances, I guess, cash flow generation or profitability with growth. It's not highly spec. Well, they can be quite speculative depending on how they're priced. But generally speaking, the rule of 40 is a way of comparing different companies where you're looking at their growth rate and their profitability or cash flow positivity. And it's scoring companies on both of these things. So that's very important because right now what we're seeing is the companies that are just cash flow you know, negative are getting absolutely smashed and some of them will eventually just go bankrupt. And then companies, even companies that are cash flow positive or profitable, a lot of them are coming down a long way as well as multiples contract. But the point is with them, for most of them, as long as they can maintain that situation or even grow their profits or cash flow, they're going to be fine. They're not going to go bankrupt. They may have their ups and downs. It doesn't mean they'll be a success just because a company is profitable. But the chances of them going bankrupt whilst they continue to be profitable is much, much lower. And it would usually be just some you know, out of left field thing would have to happen. So is uh, the rule of 40, does it apply just only to particular ki- kinds of companies like tech companies, software companies, software as a service companies? I think that it originally sort of became a way of comparing software uh, companies. And I think it has, you know, it could be used to look at any really growth at a reasonable price style companies. A lot of companies basically that are growing fast and are not maximizing profit, they often are software or tech companies because there's this balance basically between them wanting to invest in what they perceive as their competitive advantage. Now, for some of them, it truly is a competitive advantage. And for others, it's probably just keeping up with the competition. But they want to keep investing in that and then they need to keep investing to grow. So they want to keep a good growth rate. But at the same time, there's one mind view, which is like, don't worry, just run the losses and grow, grow, grow. And then the rule of thought is really more useful for companies that are actually like, well, we're at least cash flow positive, we're at least sustainable. And sort of, I think originally when it was used for uh, software companies, certainly how I first came across it was a combination of revenue growth and free cash flow margin. So the way you might define that would be the revenue growth is the year on year revenue growth. So if you look at as an example, a company I want to use that I don't own, but I really like and have previously owned shares in, which is zero. Zero kind of really started talking about the rule of 40 in its most recent results because it was transitioning from a situation where under the previous CEO, they had run pretty weak free cash flow and or, or in fact, negative free cash flow, but supposedly justified it because, you know, they, they had good revenue growth. Um, and the market wasn't really loving that in, the, in more recent times, like the, the profit going backwards, the, the free cash flow being minimal at best. And wanted to, you know, basically zero to, to show its business quality a little more. And the new CEO has come on and she's saying, look, we're going to start measuring ourselves by the rule of 40, which zero itself is defining by their normalized free cash flow number, which in the most recent results is, I think, quite reasonable. It excludes things like acquisitions. You can also argue about whether it's fair to exclude acquisitions, because if you're making an acquisition that then also contributes to revenue growth, then you should include the cost of that acquisition in calculating the free cash flow, arguably. But either way, zero is defines it that has this sort of their normalized free cash flow number, which is which is pretty reasonable. And they had revenue in FY 2023 of 1.4 billion, and the revenue growth was 28%. And the free cash flow, their number is 102.3 million. So what you can do is to get the the cash flow margin is just 
uh, divide the free cash flow by the revenue. Now, this like works for companies where revenue and, and cash receipts sort of are reasonable proxies for each other. There, you, there could be an argument, this is not such a good way to do it, depending on the exact company in question. But that gives you a free cash flow margin of 7.3%. And then you add that to the revenue growth number of 28%, which gives you 35.3%. So by Zero's own measure that they're sort of making their self there, they're basically saying, well, we're trying to get that to 40. So when the CEO says, we're going to measure ourselves by the rule of 40, the rule of 40 says, you know, you want that to be at least 40, essentially. So what she's saying, and probably why since these most recent results came out, the, the reason that the Zero share price is up is because what she's saying is, we're going to either increase the revenue growth or increase the free cash flow margin. And given re- you know Zero is reasonably mature in its biggest markets, I think it would be hard for people to imagine a scenario where they really increase their revenue growth rate from here. Really, it, it was probably more, more like you know how much does it fall by? In a way, you could interpret the CEO's comments as saying we're going to start really making some free cash flow happen now. We're going to increase that free cash flow margin now. You know because it has. 1.4 billion in in revenue as that free cash flow margin increases from you know 7.3% to you know who knows is it going to get to 15% it's really going to you know the company is going to start accumulating a lot of cash and showing its power there so i think that's why the market's getting sort of excited about that but has also got a lot of people interested in understanding the nuances of the rule of 40 and this and the different ways is this the first time in australia that it's been used oh uh, no i wouldn't say that like Analysts and, and investors have been using it in Australia for sure. This is, I'd say, the most prominent time, you know, a company that's a, a software as a service or a software company, a tech stock in Australia has said we're explicitly like aiming for this. And that sort of like set the agenda and a little bit because, you know, Zero is a, a leading tech stock. And then we sort of saw, you know, an AFR article about, you know, some other company, IRES, which is like a much more old school sort of tech company or software company. Oh, company. we're going to do it too. Yeah, exactly. And actually, that's what kind of got, you know, piqued my interest a little bit about what do readers think, because I noticed in the two AFR articles, the article about zero, you know, defined rule of 40 as, as zero does it, which is revenue growth in the free cut clash flow margin being 40 or more. Whereas another, the other article about IRES talked about the company's revenue growth plus a bit the margin should having to add up to 40 or more. And this, to me, was a little bit- Claude, sorry, let, before we get lost in the weeds here, because I, I just want to get back to the basic definition of what the rule of 40 is. You've yeah. given us the example yeah. that, um, because um, we're talking about free cash flow and then now we're talking about uh, EBITDA. Yep. Okay, so just- Break so the basic again. definition, the essentially basic, the basic. problem is there are two definitions. One definition, which is the one that I prefer, is the free cash flow margin plus the revenue growth rate has to equal 40 or more, right? And 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 that's the, funnily enough, there are two management consultant companies that take, take a different view of this. So McKinsey basically adopts that definition, whereas their competitors, Bain, they say, analysts have differed in which measure of profitability to use. Most use a bitta, they say, but some have proposed free cash flow, EBIT, or net income as alternatives. We use a bitta, a publicly available profitability metric that excludes the effects of taxes and accounting policies. So that's earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization. And um, it's not something that you really need to get into the weeds on about understanding every bit. In fact, I would actually argue that probably for most investors, certainly for beginners, a bitta is a very dangerous figure and one that you should probably try to ignore because what 
what that doesn't That's tell the accountants, you. The accountants are massaging that figure, aren't they? Well, it's funny that Bain says that this one excludes differences in accounting details because it, it most certainly doesn't. And that, that was actually one of the key points that I wanted to make is that it really does matter whether you use EBITDA or the free cash flow. So if you see a company itself having calculated the rule of 40 or you see somebody that you've read a journalist saying such and such satisfies the rule of 40, you really need to ask, uh, what's the definition? What definition are you using? Because a bitter and free cash flow are not the same things. A company can sort of have some discretion about how it classifies its spend on software developers. You know, Zero's got a bunch of software, got a lot of people working on it. Some of that work is like maintenance or fixing things or just updating them, and it's not creating a new asset. Some of that work they can classify as like R&D that's like a capitalized new thing that they're developing. And they say, oh, well, when we've spent this money on the developers, they're saying it's not actually an expense because we've actually just been investing in an asset there. So what they'll do is they'll capitalize that expenditure, that cash flow. It'll come out of the investing cash flow, sure enough, but it'll go on to the balance sheet as an as a intangible asset and won't go through the profit and loss as an expense. In subsequent years, it will go through the profit and loss as an expense being amortization. If a company did a bid expenditure one year on, on R&D, then that would affect their free cash flow margin right away and their free cash flow margin would go down. But the effect on their EBITDA margin would, would be delayed over the number of years that it amortizes that expense. So in the case of zero, if you used the free cash flow the way that zero does, which is the example I just talked you through, they reach under the rule of 30, you know, the combined percentages are 33.5%. But if we use statutory EBITDA for zero, that number is bigger than their free cash flow. It's 158.2 million. And it would be even more different if you used adjusted EBITDA. But even in just using statutory EBITDA, you get an EBITDA margin of 10.8% compared to a free cash flow margin of 7.3%. So add that to the 28% revenue growth, you get 38.8%, which is like almost achieving the rule of 40. So you can see it would be much easier for a company to achieve the rule of 40 based on, or at least much easier for zero to achieve the rule of 40 based on a bitter than it would be on cash flow. And then, as I alluded to beforehand, you can also say, well, I don't accept zero that you've you know spent money on acquisitions and you're going to exclude this, that, or the other from your normalized free cash flow. I'm actually going to just take the absolute operating cash flow and then subtract the investing cash outflow, all of it, whatever it's for. And also on top of that, I'll subtract the repayment of leases because that's like an ongoing cost, which now runs through the financing cash flow line. And and if you did all that with zero, you'd get 60, about 69.1 million as your sort of very strict free cash flow. And then so that means the, again, margin would be lower. And to calculate the rule of 40, you'd get only 32.9% then. So there, that's just three examples with one company of how you would calculate it. So that's why, you know, I definitely remind investors that, you know, Charlie Munger, you know, once said like every time you hear a bitter, just substitute the phrase bullshit earnings. And <clears throat> that's something that I do when I when I read about, you know, a bitter based rule of 40. I, I definitely uh, put more credence in the way, for example, even if it's normalized free cash flow, that's actually genuine. That's actually a measure of genuine cash coming into the business. And the basic rule of thumb is even though sometimes in very fraudulent cases, cash flow statements lie, 
you know, the old saying is cash is king. It's much harder to manipulate what's happening in the business when you're actually measuring the cold hard cash and whose account it's in. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Are you confused about how to invest? LifeSherpa can ease the burden of having to decide for yourself. Head to lifesherpa.com.au to find out more. LifeSherpa, Australia's most affordable online financial advice. So just define free cash flow for us. What, what is it and where do you find it on a, in a company report? Yeah, right. So a company like Zero, it's pretty easy to find in a company report. And I definitely recommend anyone who owns Zero shares to, to keep an eye on that metric because they calculate it for it. And, they, and so you can just you know control F in the presentation and you'll find the free cash flow. The only thing that you've got to remember is that they do that if someone's calculating something for you, then you know it's prudent to actually figure out how they're calculating that just to make sure you agree with all of those changes. Now, most of the time, like so for example, with zero, it's like they're excluding the deferred consideration of a past acquisition or something like that, which probably is quite fair to do. So I'm not saying that you know you should be suspicious of all adjustments, but I do think that uh, at the end of the day, it can also be useful to have a strict definition, which is just the same for every company. And then that allows you to compare companies with each other on a more fair basis. And when I use a strict definition, I would use what I described before. So that's just in an Australian company report. If you turn to the cash flow statement, you're going to see there are sort of a few sections of the cash flow statement. And those sections are the operating cash flow part, the investing cash flow part, and the financing cash flow part. And so what you do is you just take the subtotal that's at the bottom of the operating cash flow, which I hope for any kind of profitable company you would generally experience on a yearly basis. If the company's profitable, then that's almost always going to be a positive number. And then you subtract the total of the investing cash flow, which is, again, almost always going to be a negative number. There might be things you want to remove from that. For example, there could be a situation where uh, companies redeemed a term deposit, for example, and that might run through the investing cash flow statement. So you have to watch out for something like that you might want to exclude. But as a general rule, you just can take the investing cash outflow. And so you take the operating cash flow and then subtract the investing cash outflow. That will give you a number. And then in order to account for the fact that companies spend varying amounts on their, you know, on their like leases for their offices and that and their premises, you also want to look at the financing cash flow section and you'll find something that is called repayment of lease liabilities usually or something like that or payment of lease liabilities and then you might want to subtract and that'll be a negative number so you can want to subtract that as well and that will give you a sort of strict free cash flow number that you can then use that to calculate the free cash flow margin of any of the growth stocks you're looking at and then you have a like-for-like like measure if you define it the same way for everybody. And that is, I think, the power of the real power of the rule of 40. It doesn't actually matter whether you use a EBITDA or free cash flow. But as long as you're using a, what is hopefully a statutory like-for-like like calculation and it 
that is gives you a basis on which to compare the companies. So I guess the point is not to actually believe that journalist that you referred to before who says, okay, this is uh, this company's got the... Um- well, it's not about not believing. It's not about not believing them because like they... It's first of taking, all... Taking the numbers on your own terms rather than on I terms think that are it's determined for you. It's just important when you're comparing different companies, you're using the same measure. So that article I mentioned before, like that did do that, by the way. It took a bunch of different companies and used the same measure for all of them. So that's totally valid. The point I was making is that if somebody cross-referenced the two articles that used a different mechanism or, you know, they hear me talking about it and I'm using free cash flow and then they read the same, read an article by a different author and that's using EBITDA, I'm not really saying that the EBITDA one's wrong. I'm basically saying that you just have to, you can't cross-reference people that are using different measures of the rule of 40. That's the thing. So, the thing that I was more trying to flag was like the company itself might say, hey, this is our rule of 40 score. You know, how have they measured it? And for that reason, basically, I was just saying you've got to be aware of it. I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't say doing it with a bitter is wrong. I think that actually, as long as you're using the standard thing across different companies, there's like a legitimate value to that. So, what are the other companies you wanted to look at in this uh, interview? What well, there's, um, yeah, and so this is true Corp for and Prometicus. Yeah, yeah, this is true for quite. Almost everyone will get a, a better number if they used the a bitter number versus the free cash flow number because by definition, these companies are spending usually on R&D and capitalizing some of that. But one company that's interesting because it doesn't really capitalize its R&D and, and one that I own shares in is Objective Corp, which has come down a fair bit lately, sort of in line with tech stocks, but also, by the way, because it missed its guidance or downgraded its guidance. And so they do software for like government and, and large corporates, like the governance of information. So there are documents in public service that a council wants to know who has access to what kind of records and, you know, they, they don't want necessarily everyone that works for council accessing somebody's building development or whatever it is. But there's also like a workflow association with a, associated with a development application. So one of Objective Corp's areas of operation is to provide software that, that helps with building approval processes. So you can see like the attraction for me is obviously it's like very ingrained into like, first of all, a lot of government big corporate customers, they're going to keep paying no matter what, they're, like, they're not going to go bankrupt. And then second of all, you know, it's it's really in the, work th- in the workflow of core functions for society. You can totally imagine, you know, automation having more and more of a role in these processes. And, and as that happens, these guys are sort of well-suited to, to benefit. But, you know, they don't look as good on the rule rule of 40 as zero, for example. I think we got to 35 and a little bit under zero's definition of free cash flow. Objective Corp comes in at about 33 by my calculations. And But one of the interesting facts about these- So they're not quite at 40 yet? No, and their revenue growth is is slower. So they only had 12% revenue growth using the FY22 results. And it's going to be, I think, probably worse in FY2023 based on the first half. And- they do have luckily a strong free cash flow margin. So they have higher free cash flow margin than zero. They had 21.3%. And that gives you an idea of the kind of potential zero has, because this is just, you know, a slower growing software company that is getting to a roughly the same score on the rule of 40, but through a different way. In, in Objective's case, it's slower revenue growth, but high free cash flow margin. And I think, you know, it shows the kind of potential zero has at maturity to at least, you know, potentially double its free cash flow margins from here. And, and even, I mean, who knows how high beyond that. So that one, I was just interested to do the, do it for some of the tech stocks I do own. So I did with Objective Corp, got 33.3. Yeah, that seems pretty decent, but not great. But it fails the rule of 40. And then 
the one that did really well of it is is the one that I also own shares in and have it's like my longest holding now, uh, which is ProMedicus, and that had anyone who follows you on Twitter, Claude, knows about ProMedicus. Yeah, yeah. So I would <laughs> invite me. anyone to calculate the rule of forty for ProMedicus because you know I don't even want to say how high I got when I calculated that rule of forty based on the FI twenty twenty two results because I'm scared that it'll be, that it's a mistake because it looks so much higher than objective corp or zero. But that's the homework for anybody that's out there. If nothing else, you know, the rule of 40, and it does give you a way to compare these tech stocks. So Objective Corp, that's on a P ratio of like 60, so still pretty high. And Prometicus is on a P ratio of like 120 or maybe 100 or something, almost twice the P ratio. And funnily enough, I get about almost twice or around twice the, the score in the rule of 40 for Prometicus as well. So you could argue that, you know, to a degree, and I'm not saying this is justified, by the way, not at all, but to a degree, you could argue the rule of 40 is useful because it is going to give you a good guide, not a good guide, but a useful directional guide as to what PE ratio a stock might trade on after it reaches a certain point of profitability. And that's why I'd say it's useful because I think it's a very easy quantitative measure for that an everyday investor can use just to compare the quality of the growth stocks in their portfolio. So it's really simple, really. Like, you know, if it's achieving a higher growth rate and a higher free cash flow margin, it's a stronger business and it probably almost certainly deserves a higher PE ratio than one that has a lower one. And it gives you, you know, a way to measure it. Oh, these ones are close or these ones are far apart. And then you can go and cross-check and say, are their PE ratios close or are they far apart? So no no single measure is ever perfect and... You know, rule of thumb stuff on the edges, it always has like quirks where it, it doesn't really work. Like, you know, for an example, like it's easy for one year's results just to not, you know, a company could have a free cash flow margins of between 7% and, and 10% for like five years and then just like fluke at one year and it gets higher for some random reason because it, for example, sold something or had some cash come in. Uh, so there's lots of different ways it, it can go wrong. And I hope that, you know, in our discussion, I've given listeners some way to actually think about how well does the rule of 40 test hold for this company? Watch for some of the ways that the integrity of the test can be impacted. Watch, you know, you can use a Bitter if you want, but you might want to cross-check to see the free cash flows like in the same vicinity as, as a Bitter. And because if one, com- you know, and, and again, with free cash flow, you can get an outlier result really easily with free cash flow as well for whatever reason. It, it could be really bad because they paid for a, you know, they might have paid for an acquisition in, uh, say, June and received none of the revenue for that acquisition, but they did a massive cash outflow for it. In that case, you know, the, the cash flow would look really bad. So there's lots of, like, I guess the devil's always in the detail, but this gives you a way to actually measure the growth stocks in your portfolio and just to see how well they're doing in a way that cross-checks both their profitability or their cash flow generation, which is what you ultimately want out of a company, but also measuring that against the growth. So for that reason, I think that you know if you go and perform the rule of 40 test on a few of your holdings, you're only going to get a better as an, as an investor if you do that and, and learn more about the companies you, you um, hold shares on. I wouldn't make a decision based purely on this one thing, but it's just an, it's a use, useful data point to monitor. And you've um, kindly written an article about this, which this episode is going to be embedded in and um, where listeners can find out more about the, the rule of 40, haven't you? Yeah, that's right. That's if you want to do your homework and then you need a reminder of how to calculate it on this, you, you should be able to find it by Googling, you know, how to calculate the rule of 40 and, and my name. But, you know, I think finally, you know, 
it, it wanted to lead into another point. It's like why I chose this subject today, which is that I genuinely think for beginner investors, if you make the, the, the upside from doing the rule of 40 test on your companies is that it's going to keep you in companies that are profitable, basically, or free cash flow generative. Like there's nothing wrong with doing a totally speculative thing on something that's not making money, but just remember that it's like gambling and I'd never put more than you afford to lose in. Even for growth stocks, obviously, they can go hugely up and hugely down. They're generally more volatile. So it's still going to be like a risky, a riskier investment. Any investment that you're evaluating like this is, it's got to be in like the growth part of your investment pyramid. You know, hopefully you've got a lot more in much more uh, conservative assets. But yeah, also it's going to keep you focused on like quality and sustainability of a company overall. And basically saying, you know, if you're not a really profitable or free cash flow generative company, then you need to compensate with high growth, and and it's going to set your standards better. Basically, and you'll you'll if you do it on all the companies in the ASX, for sure you'll end up spending time learning about companies that are more likely to be multi-year compounders. Because going back to the beginning of the episode, really, if you're investing in small cap growth stocks, the whole for me the main thing like this. By the way, there's other strategies, small cap value, unforgetting, you're going to get a capital return, big dividends, whatever it could be, multiple ways to win. I'm just talking about one pure strategy, which is trying to find a smaller growing company that's one day going to be a bigger growing company and then benefiting from both the combination of the growing earnings and even as unbelievable as it sounds, like, you know, earnings multiple uplift as well, given that essentially there are small cap companies that are that have got some kind of problem with them or they're just like on the verge of profitability like you know zero is or whatever and you can hold them for a few years and they will eventually make it and then they become a you know one of the ones that are considered super high quality like ProMedicus or technology one that we talked about earlier that have long histories of earnings growth and blah 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 and then you do have all the big fundies in it because they're like this is the growth stock this is the quality growth stock it, it grows its earnings every year and they, that's the thing they're looking for. And there's always going to be some money chasing that. And I still, I'm not saying sell then either, by the way, but that's, I don't see as much upside then, put it that way. Like after that's happened, I, fa- I say, well, who's the next guy after that that's going to be the enthusiastic buyer off, the, off those people? And it's harder to point to someone there. Yeah, and I think the lesson that I've picked up from this and that I've picked up from many other guests and on other episodes is that it's too easy to just get uh, taken in by the story of a stock without actually even doing the, the most basic accounting due diligence. And if anyone has got something to take away from this episode, it's it's not easy, but this is the kind of work that you got to do if you are going to invest in individual stocks. I know I sound like a complete nerd, but I'm going to hammer it one last time. All you need is the revenue. And then you need to get the free cash flow or a bit there. Try and just get calculate the free cash flow yourself. That's going to be the best learning experience. Worst case scenario, just look for the statutory, not in not underlying a bit the statutory a bit And then calculate the margin by dividing the cash flow or the bit by the revenue. Also get the revenue growth based on the year before, which the company will almost always tell you. Make sure you're looking at a full year results just because it's added level of complexity if you're trying to look at the half-year results and do this same exercise. Um, look at the full-year results. They'll tell you the revenue growth rate. Add them together. Do it for a bunch of your holdings, and that's going to give you a way to monitor and write them down, and then you can do it the year later. And that, that way you have to measure each company against each other and it against itself over time. Claude Walker, thanks very much for joining me today. Thanks very much for having me and having an investing nerd session. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> I love them. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to Shares for Beginners. You can find more at sharesforbeginners.com. If you enjoy listening, please take a moment to rate or review in your podcast player or tell a friend who might want to learn more about investing for their future. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.